0: The month of October featured just three games for the Sun Devils and came dangerously close to being a nightmare stretch for the ASU program that just a few weeks ago was labeled the biggest surprise in the Pac-12. Whatever feeling euphoria may have been felt in Tempe and among the Arizona State fans came crashing down to earth with back-to-back road losses and has now put the prospects of a winning season let alone demonstrating improvement over the 2018 campaign in serious jeopardy. So what are the issues that have plagued Arizona State the last two weeks, and what can we realistically expect the rest of the way? We try to make sense of it all with our guest, former Arizona State defensive back and Sun Devil Network sideline reporter Jordan Simone, as well as my analysis by answering your various questions on the team. Welcome to the Devil's Junkies podcast. I'm your host and devilsjudice.com publisher, Hode Rubino. Let's get it started.
1: I was living in a devil town.
0: Didn't
1: know it was a devil town, oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town.
0: We have a very special guest in the Devils Junkies podcast to review what took place against at UCLA in the Rose Bowl last Saturday and really what's been taking place in these back-to-back losses by the Sun Devils, uh, Jordan Simone. Uh, Jordan, how you doing? I am great. Thank you for having me on this podcast. So from your unique advantage point of being the sideline reporter for the Sun Devil Network uh, during Arizona State football broadcast, I definitely wanted to get your perspective on uh, what's been uh, going on the last couple weeks here. And as you know, uh, as the old saying goes, things are rarely as good or as bad as they seem. So when you apply that to Arizona State, do you think that maybe this team was not as dominant as that 5-1 record? At the time suggested, and do you believe that things are certainly better than some may think with the current five and three mark and a two-game losing streak? Yeah, I think that this team is
1: is the dominant team that we've seen all year. I think uh, against Utah, they went up against the best defense in the conference, coupled with the worst weather that they've played in, um, and it's not even close this year. So, I think those two factors uh, can can. Uh, you know, tribute to the the Utah loss, um, and then the, the UCLA loss is is really the first time that they've shown their youth. Now, in the Utah game, there were some bad penalties uh, that that you know you look at and go, man, that's just that's just not the type of team that we have been accustomed to seeing under Herm Edwards. And then in the UCLA game, um, you know they just they just came out flat. They weren't ready to play. Um, you know, as a former player, I am allowed uh, access into pretty much anywhere I want to be, and I'm I'm very thankful to Herm for that. Um, so I, I don't I don't like to say too much of you know what goes down in the locker room or what I what I see. Sure. But if you could just you could just tell that there was a sense, and Herm will tell you this when when they when they for whatever reason when they were going out of the field, there just wasn't an energy about them uh, for the UCLA game, and and it happens, man. I remember. Being a part of some games where you just, the team just feels flat. There's no energy. Um, You know, we went up to Corvallis, Oregon in 2014, and it was that same type of feel, just like, oh man, what is going on? Why does it, why, where's the energy? Why don't we feel it? And it's hard to pull yourself out of that once you get into that slump. Um, and I've, I've heard, I I felt it when I was at Washington state before, and I know other teams and players have felt like that. So it's really tough to get out of. Do I think that this team can be dominant? Absolutely. But I think that there's, um, you know, when you play 28 freshmen, there's bound to be some signs of immaturity and, um, and stupid penalties and mistakes and blown coverages. That's, that is going to happen, um, with each young player that you play. Uh, so, if you have a couple freshmen start, that they say that's how many games you'll lose mm-hmm. is the amount of freshmen that you start. I've heard that before, and sometimes it holds true. But with this coaching staff, it just feels different. So, I, I think that I think that ASU fans need to pump the brakes on on starting to say, "Oh, well, is this team is really as good as they as we thought?" Yes, they are. They just have growing pains because they're young.
0: Mm-hmm. So, before we get to the nuts and bolts of what happened in the Rose Bowl last Saturday. Let's talk about that lack of discipline, the 12 penalties against Utah, the nine against UCLA, six of, them, six of those penalties in the first half alone. Are you surprised by this seemingly uncharacteristic behavior? Or, again, do you think maybe this is something that was kind of simmering for a little while and just kind of coming to a boil, so to speak, the last couple of weeks?
1: You know, I think I think you look at a couple different things. Uh, Herm is a player's coach. Um, he has standards. If you don't meet them, you won't play. I think that I think they're gonna look at the tape this week and say if this if these mistakes keep happening you will not play because they need to address the penalties because um, because some of them are bad kicking the football after the play just stupid penalties Eno throwing the football at a UCLA player be um, out of pure frustration you know he's an older guy he's got to figure that out and you can't let your emotions get the best, uh, the best of you in these big games. And every game is a big game down the stretch. Now, uh, another thing, uh, that I'll talk about is, um, the PAC 12 officiating was flat out terrible in that game. I mean, if you look at the, I think in the first half, there was seven penalties against ASU and zero against UCLA. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, a lot of them were, were really, really bad calls. Um, but people, people want to blame the refs for the loss, and you can't. I mean, Eno fumbles on the first drive um, when they were moving the football and getting comfortable, and Jaden made some uh, good passes, and then the fumble kills them. It completely flips momentum onto UCLA's side. Now ASU gets a turnover, um, and you start to feel like, all right, maybe momentum's back on their side. But it's it's you know people want to look to somebody to blame for for the game, and it was really um, the defense not being able to stop the run. Uh, UCLA had ran the ball for, you know, three games in a row of 200 yards plus, And when they did that, they won. And they did it against ASU. They looked like the most dominant run team in all of the Pac-12. Um, so they, they were gashing them through their defense, you know, big holes and things that they need to correct. So as much as the refs did miss a lot of calls that could change, that could have changed the game, um, there's there's other things that you you got to look at if I'm the defensive coordinator or, or Herm and say, we can't control what the refs are going to say. We have to correct what we can and control what we can control.
0: So someone, someone that did play defensive back uh, for the Sun Devils, I wanted to pick your brain a little and ask you, I mean, what are some of the deficiencies that really stand out to you the last two weeks? Even though the Utah and UCLA offenses, I would say, are, are quite different than each other, but the bottom line is, and maybe more the UCLA game than the Utah game, but there were some drives that, that offense on the other side of the ball of Arizona State is absolutely having its way with the Sun Devils. Are there any common themes you've seen in the last two weeks that are really troublesome?
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you just have to stop the run. When you stop the run, that that helps everything. I think the defensive backs have played well. Uh, they're, they're, they're asked to do a lot in coverage and, and mix up their coverage. I thought they've done well. The thing that they they didn't do too well against UCLA was tackle. So when that when that first uh, you know when the running back gets through the first line of the d- defense, being the D line, and you know ASU always walks their linebackers up to show different looks, um, but but UCLA, you got to give them credit. They did a great job of of uh, turning the defensive line and creating lanes up into the second level, and for the first time. Um, you know, ASU still did a good job of tackling their DBs, but there were some plays where they usually make tackles that that they weren't in this game, and I think that that hurt them. Um, and then just the immaturity—they're they're yelling at each other on the sideline, um, and, and that's not a winning football team. That's not a winning attitude. A winning team comes together in times when when they feel like they're making mistakes and understands that. If we make a couple corrections, we'll be just fine. They don't start pointing fingers and turning at each other, and that's just a sign of immaturity. Again, you've got to have guys that are leading that step up and say, "Hey, hey, hey, come together. We got this. Let's focus. Everybody, just do your job. We're going to be just fine." Instead of saying, "Bro, that's on you. You got to fix this or that." Um, no, it's 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 time for everybody to look in the mirror and say, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna help this defense right now by doing my job better." Uh, whether that's playing corner and locking down or playing safety and coming up and making tackles. So, they like I said before, they've got some stuff they got to fix on tape. I'm not worried. I'm not worried one bit because of this coaching staff and the experience they have in, um, in losing games and, and responding. So, I think they're going to get these guys right. This, this, uh, this bye week will be good for them to, to get a lot of corrections and really figure out um, how they can help their young, their young team.
0: So with honesty Jordan when this team was 5 and 1 and things are just humming along and you know maybe some wins were not as pretty but who cares you know it goes in the right column of the ledger but did you see any warning signs prior to the last two games that just came to fruition in a very adverse way obviously uh
1: that's a good question i i really don't have a great answer to that question mm-hmm. i mean i think you've seen you've seen signs of Defense getting you know kind of hit against Washington State, they let up a lot of points, um, but they always responded and gave the offense a chance. Um, like I said against Utah, their 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 defense was just on the field so long, and um, they still they still had a bunch of turnovers and and responded. Um, but at the end of the day, the offense has got to help you know help them get off the field and get some rest. Um, so I I would say I haven't seen any signs that would show. Especially what their performance last week looked like, or this, this weekend, last weekend against UCLA. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not, I did not see that coming. I thought for sure that they'd come out and play more disciplined after, after being, after losing. But I think this team likes to be the underdog, and they always play better when they're the underdog. When they're favored and supposed to win, they come out and just expect the other team to lay down. When that's not the case, and that's not the Pac 12. Any team in the Pac-12 can beat any team. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Oregon came down to ASU and ASU beat them, like, easily. I would not be surprised because that's the type of team they are. They're going to play their best when they're playing the best. Yeah. And that's not the, that's not what Herm wants, but it's what he's got right now, and um, I think that's, you know, better than just having a team that's, that goes, you know, 4-8 or whatever.
0: So even though ASU lost back-to-back games to Utah and UCLA, There's no doubt in anybody's mind that the Utah defense was much more challenging than the UCLA one. Having said that, are you surprised that it took that long for the ASU offense to get going against a UCLA defense? That even though they were on a little of a roll coming into this game, they really were giving up points by the bushel.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's frustrating for fans to, 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 to have a team that's up and down like this. But that's what you got when you have younger players. That are still, you know, trying to figure it out. You got younger guys on the offensive line and, you know, Eno obviously has had some had some troubles last game. But yeah, I, I just think it's it's tough, man. You gotta you gotta be ready to play each and every week and um, you know, you gotta have older guys that take command and lead the team. And you know, Cole Cabral's gotta be at the forefront of that in leading, and I think he does a good job. Um, but especially when you're struggling. Hey, just keep going, boys. Just keep going. Keep your head down. Everybody, keep working. Keep doing your job. We're gonna get it right. And they showed signs of, of big plays. And um, you know the fumbles hurt you. Fumbles kill uh, momentum and drives. And, and it just trying to get Jaden into a rhythm again. And I think at some point you gotta look at the play calling and say, all right, what what is going wrong here? And I think Herm. And Marvin Lewis uh, are are seriously looking at that and saying, how can we help our offense? What can we do to help them? How can we make this more uh, simplistic to, to get our quarterback comfortable early? And I think in the first drive of the UCLA game, it looked good. Jaden steps up, throws an out route, um, and, and starts completing uh, some some easy passes to get them going. And um, you know, just when you have turnovers, it just kills your drive and it, it kills the rhythm of the of the offensive flow.
0: You know, everybody has their own theory whether a bye week does or doesn't come at a good time. And I always contended that it really depends on how you perform in that first game coming off a of bye week. But in your experience, when you have such a demoralizing loss like Arizona State had against UCLA, and again a second consecutive defeat at that, is it better really just to take a step back and have that one-week hiatus to get get away from it to some extent? or is it more advantageous to just hit the field next Saturday and implement all the corrections you've been working on all week as quickly as possible? Well, I think a bye week's always beneficial just
1: from a, a, a chance to give your body a rest. Um, now, does it suck to lose and then it'll have to sit around for a week? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think this, this coaching staff is going to do a great job of, of getting these guys in the right mindset and giving them time to, to relax and rest Um and just, and, and move on, you know, really, uh, another week, uh, they'll get a watch USC. Uh, I don't think USC has a buy this week, weekend. I know. I know. Uh, so they'll, so they'll get a watch them, um, and get their minds, you know, focused on something else and, and be able to have a chance to relax and maybe see their families. So I, I like that. Um, and I always like to buy a week just cause You know, especially being on a defensive player, their body gets pretty banged up throughout the course of the year. And Mm. I'm I'm just shocked that they have two bye weeks in the first place. I don't remember ever having two bye weeks.
0: Yeah, it's one one, of those quirks in the calendar. I think it happens like every seven, eight years. So, yeah, I guess uh, you you were fortunate to miss it back in the day. That would have been nice. Yeah, even though back in the day isn't that back in the day in your case. But, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But last question, Jordan. Uh, In your opinion, if you had like a personal to do list, the three most important items, that Arizona State has to address in order to stop the bleeding over here and get back to their, to their winning ways. What would Jordan Simone's top three list of things that need to be accomplished in this bye week would consist of?
1: Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I would say, one, defensively they need to look at stopping the run, and I think it starts with Merlin Robertson. Uh, that's a name that we have not talked about really at all this year. He's maybe had one game where he jumped off the tape um and I, I, it might still be you know you're oh, we're over halfway through the season now so it, it might be time to st- start talking um you know sophomore slump it's it's something that that happens to guys and it's a very real problem and I'll tell you why because you have so much success in um in the in you know your first freshman year you're just trying to figure stuff out you're playing hard you're not thinking too much your sophomore year, you start seeing articles written about you. You're on watch list. You're on this, that, the other, and and all of a sudden you start buying into the hype and reading the press and start stop doing the little things and start thinking about okay. Uh, you start thinking about other things that you might you you know you're good. You're the man. Everybody you know always has your back and and you don't need to no. You stop playing as hard. And I think if I was if I was Merlin's coach, a Antonio Pierce, I'm telling him hey here's your tape from last year here's your tape from this year what do you notice mm-hmm. and I guarantee you I guarantee you it's getting lined up and getting in a good stance and doing the fundamentals right when you do the little things right it makes the big things happen it sounds cliche but it's so damn true mm-hmm. I know because it happened to me when I played my first my first couple games of my senior year I wasn't I was worried about other things I was trying to get other guys lined up and I instead of worried about what I was doing and I guarantee you that's what's happening to them um, now, Darian Butler, on the other hand, is, is playing great. He looks good. He, he's somebody that they were really excited about in camp. So, stop the run. Number two, let's get some play calling that is, uh, gets Jaden going um, early and, and run the football. Run the, run the ball and, and let Cole Cabral be the leader in that. And, and that will always travel. You know, if you can stop the run and run the football you're always going to play well and always travel. You always hear Herm say that. And then number three, I don't know if I have a number three. I think I'll just stick with two. If they can do those th- two, two, two things right, um, they're going to be okay. Number three, maybe will just be, I need to report on the sidelines better. <laughs>
0: Well, qu- qu- quality for quantity, that, that, that always works. Hey, exactly. Hey, Jordan, th- thank you so much for your time. Uh, again, with, with your unique perspective and being as close as you are to the team, uh, it's really great to get your insight about what's going uh, well, what's not going well for Arizona State, and what to fix for, for the future. Thank you so much for joining the Devils Junkies podcast. Definitely look forward to having you in the future.
1: I appreciate you, Hoda, And I'll just say that the future is very, very bright for this team I think ASU fans want – it's so easy in our world right now to want to it right now, want the Rose Bowl right now. But give this team a couple years, and they're going to be really, really impressive. So just stay on the Herm train. <laughs> it's all, it's all going to be good. It's going to be okay.
0: As I invited both followers on Twitter, at the Devils Junkies podcast, as well as our Devils Huddle premium members at devilsdigest.com the term Misery Loves Company definitely comes true. This is by far the largest number of questions that I received for any given podcast, so let's get right to it. I will naturally start with the people who take care of me, my Imperium subscribers at Devils Huddle, and Sun Devil Rob submitted several questions, but let's start with the first one. Maybe it's me, but does it seem almost all the criticism online by Sun Devil fans are focused on solely the coaches rather than the players not executing? How much of what's happening is actually on the coaches, and how much do you think is on the players not executing? Well, I definitely think it takes two to tango. If you had immaculate preparation, which may be unattainable, no matter who the coaching staff is, then there's no reason why the players cannot execute well but mental mistakes obviously occur on each and every game sometimes you just get beat by a better athlete or just an athlete that executed at a higher level than you did but i think that maybe i would put the onus a little more on the coaches just because this team is young i mean if you have a seasoned veteran team four or five years seniors up and down the roster i'm not saying the coach's role is diminished but your expectation level for those veteran players is higher. And when those players don't have the benefit of experience, then it's really incumbent on the coaches to prepare those players as much as they can to execute at a high level and have those coaches put their players in the best position to make impact plays, given their inexperience, given the fact that they may be facing players who are more experienced, which, by the way, I think probably applied more against a team like Utah, which definitely has upperclassmen at a much higher percentage of the roster compared to a team like UCLA. So, again, I know it sounds diplomatic to say that both the players and the coaches carry the same amount of blame, but if you are really getting into the weeds of this, so to speak, I think when you have a younger roster like Arizona State does, it is more of an onus on the coaches to make sure that their preparation is on point because at the end of the day, when you have inexperienced players, I think there's only so much you can ask from them to execute at a certain level. And it's incumbent on you as a coach to really put that player in the best situation, given all the tools or lack thereof to play at the highest level possible. Next question comes from West Valley devil. What is your sense of the mood slash demeanor of the team and Herm Edwards? Are they devastated with the loss, or do you think mentally they'll be prepared to get a win with USC coming to town after the bye week? Well, that's really the $64,000 question. I think it's a question that you may not get a straight and honest answer right now. Maybe it's an answer that reveals itself more next week as the preparations kick in him into higher gear towards that meeting with the trojans i didn't necessarily see a overly distraught team from a coach's perspective or a player's perspective and granted you're dealing with somewhat of a small sample size because you only have three players come into the uh inter post game interview room herm edwards and two coordinators came there as well Uh, they definitely seemed disappointed but To say that they're absolutely distraught or besides themselves, I think, would definitely be mischaracterizing their demeanor right after that loss to UCLA. So it's really going to be interesting to see if having that attitude is or is not conducive for future success. I know sometimes fans, and I wouldn't even call overcritical fans, but just fans in general, want to see players flip over tables and punch players. Walls, what have you, to show how frustrating and how disgusted they are with their performance. But is that conducive for a better showing the next week? I'm not necessarily sure. And I think as coaches, you really have to be even keel after wins as much as you are after losses. And Herm Edwards has said on many occasions he prides himself on being on being that way. Uh, I think that some of the coaches may do a better job than others being uh, cool, calm, and collected after a win as much as they are after a loss. So it's hard to say, really, if the mood that we saw immediately after the game was overly distraught or maybe more joyous than we expected it to be. That's a really hard question to answer. And like I said, maybe gauging the temperature of the team next week would provide somewhat of a more educated answer on this specific question. Uh, Going back to uh, Sun Devil Rob, uh, what are my opinions on offensive coordinator Rob Likens' play calling? Uh, I don't know, but it seems like we almost always play better as the game progresses, hence Likens' must-adapting and responding, usually uh, well enough so we get better in most games. Does he he feel that uh, the fans are being fair to the criticism levied at offensive coordinator Rob Likens? I, I think it's fair to say that in a game like UCLA, and there are probably some other games earlier in the year, too, that the offense did get off to a slow start, maybe taking a little too long to feel out the opponent's defense, what have you. And, and that's something that definitely hindered Arizona State, and there were some instances where they were able to get away with that. There were some instances where it definitely cost them. And I think UCLA is a prime example of that when you score – only 10 points throughout uh, three quarters and have to wait uh, until the fourth quarter to score 22 points, which is obviously an impressive feat, but the epitome of too little, too late. And look, sometimes when you have a quicker start by the offense, that's not not necessarily a recipe for a victory. If you remember the Colorado game, uh, it really was a true shootout in the first half, but the second half, both teams scored just 10 points. So that was an example of Maybe the offense really figuring everything out right out of the gates, but in the second half could not adjust to the scheme changes that the Buffalo defense threw at them. So, again, slow start, fast start doesn't always necessarily translate into a guaranteed win or guaranteed loss. But uh, that was definitely an issue against UCLA. I felt, and I mentioned this in a lot of my post game narrative, that this was a defense that Arizona State really needed to unleash, unleash on, especially in the passing game, and that simply did not even come close to fruition throughout the first three quarters. And this was a contest where the defense that has been doing a great job carrying the offense's strap, the entire team on their back, for the first half of the season, really had a extremely tough outing and was not able to stop the bleeding until much later in the game and that's where the offense really had to make sure that they were answering every UCLA blow with a blow of their own and that didn't happen so in terms of the play calling this is stuff that I mentioned before I just felt that there wasn't a lot of complexity in the passing game now is that being over over cautious, over conservative with a true freshman quarterback like Jaden Daniels Sure, I'm sure that plays into the grand scheme of things and the approach that Rob Likens and the coaching staff took towards this game. But I also feel that when you had such a poor passing defense on the other side of the ball, you really needed to take advantage of it. And it is disappointing that Arizona State was not able to do that. So the slow start, like I said, doesn't always mean this game is going to end up in the loss column, but that definitely was the case against UCLA. Another question from uh, Sun Devil Rob, what's your opinion on where the defensive line and offensive line will be next year? If if ASU is going to be serious Pac-12 contenders in 2020, isn't this really the real litmus test between the real contenders and the pretenders for the Pac-12 championship game? Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind that if you don't have stout offensive and defensive lines it makes it near impossible to achieve a lofty goal like a division championship let let alone anything else beyond that it's going to be a case where you're still going to have pretty young lines on both sides of the ball offensive line we all know Arizona State is losing six seniors at least on paper uh, we can see if maybe there's some kind of appeal process with seniors kate cote and zach robertson i wouldn't be holding my breath especially when it when it comes to robertson but you never know so this is definitely going to be an offensive line in 2020 that's going to be dominated by underclassmen how much of a factor can that play does this unit take a major step back due to that inexperience factor that remains to be seen on defensive line now you'll have an upperclassman in jermaine Lolay who I think has been playing very, very well this year, as well as nose tackle DJ Davidson. But behind those two players, not a lot of experience in terms of just playing time or just having a lot of upperclassmen. So defensive line might be in somewhat better shape than offensive line, but not really significantly better. So that is something that uh, you definitely want to keep an eye on in 2020. I think a lot of people do agree that 2021 where a lot of these young pups on both sides of the ball for the Sun Devils are going to be upperclassmen, that's when this team is going to truly break out. It's kind of weird to sit here on October 28th, 2019, already talking about the 2020 season being an absolute wash and that the inexperience is really going to plague the Sun Devils and just frame it as a guaranteed outcome. It's it's really hard to say. I think just like this team with a lot of freshmen in the beginning of the year was able to surprise a lot of people. There's no reason to think that a team that is going to have a lot of sophomores and, upper and underclassmen in general is really going to falter just because they are underclassmen, because they are freshmen or sophomores. So experience won't be on the side of the offensive and defensive line, especially when it comes to the offensive line. But I don't feel that is necessarily a prelude to a struggling season because a lot of these underclassmen by the time 2020 rolls by are going to have a lot of experience under their belt. So maybe they won't be your quote unquote typical underclassmen because of that experience factor. So that may be an aspect that ultimately could be less significant than a lot of us think that it may be. Next question comes from Santan Devil. Do you think Chase Lucas and Jack Jones are going to be drafted in the 2020 NFL draft if they declare early? Or do you see them actually making a 53-man roster or practice squad by virtue of being an undrafted free agent? I think that both Lucas and Jones have a decent chance of being drafted in day three of the draft. I think Chase Lucas, despite having just 32 tackles through eight games, has definitely played much better than 2018, really resembling more of his play in, in, in 2017. So I've I definitely been impressed with the way he has played, definitely tackling better, has three tackles for loss, uh, something that is pretty uh, uncommon, I would say, for, for a cornerback, no matter what kind of defensive scheme you're playing in. So that definitely has been uh, impressive to see. Uh, Jack Jones has 11 pass breakups, by far leading the team and actually the rest of his teammates only have six so he definitely has uh, proven to be quite uh, the ball hawk i know there's some games where he got picked on quite a bit but we find out later that he wasn't always receiving the help that he was supposed to receive from other safeties so i definitely think that he's having a pretty good year in his own right when it comes to leaving early for the nfl draft it's not only about what kind of draft grade you are or are not getting from nfl front offices sometimes you just have personal circumstances that dictate that early entry into the nfl draft and i think that's definitely the case with both players so i know it might be frustrating for fans to see those two players possibly enter the 2020 draft and then end up getting drafted even in the sixth or seventh and last round maybe even being free agents but again, there's just more factors that go into play in terms of a decision to leave early for the draft. And that's some of the stuff that really happens behind the scenes that fans aren't always privy to. So that's how I see their prospects at the next level. But I think they definitely can play on, on an NFL team. I don't know what kind of career they would have in the long term. But again, t- to make a 53-man roster, whether it's being drafted in the much later rounds or even coming as a undrafted free agent, I wouldn't would not put it past uh, both of them. I think in having, I think they're both having good enough years to justify such a uh, career path in the pros, if you will. Next question comes from Scottsdale Sun Angel One. Why is Herm Edwards uh, taking talking? I'm sorry, more with special teams coach uh, Sean Slocum rather than defensive coordinator. Danny Gonzalez on the sidelines and uh, maybe Rob Likens the offensive creator needs to be out of the box Uh, I'll start answering the second question first I feel that in terms of calling plays uh, graduate assistant Mike Berkovici is really more proficient in that specific aspect so him being on the sidelines actually calling into plays to the offense is the best role for him the best role for the offense And I think Rob Likens with his experience having the bird's eye view from the coach's box and calling plays into the headsets rather than calling actual plays with hand signals is something that's really better suited for his skills and just the overall flow of the ASU offense. I not necessarily see Herm Edwards talk more or less to Sean Slocum than he does to Danny Gonzalez. I know that Gonzalez, obviously when the defense is on the sideline, is – involved in more personal instructions, especially for the defensive back group. So it's not always that conducive for Herm Edwards to pull aside Danny Gonzalez and say whatever needs to be said. But we know that Herm Edwards is a very hands-on head coach, and if he feels that he needs to intervene, whether it's during practice, let alone during the game, and talk to a certain position along with their position coach he'll definitely do that so i don't necessarily see that as as being a problem and really talking more to a special teams coach that has more bandwidth if that makes sense compared to an offensive or defensive coordinator i think that it's really not all that odd for a head coach to be seen talking to such a coach rather than one of his coordinators especially one of them is in the box to begin with. Scottsdale uh, Sun Angel also asked if the coaches really do seem out of sync with uh, any game adjustments. Do do they feel that the coaches are soft too in their approach and in turn having their players play soft as well? Uh, if I'm gonna answer the second question first, I don't think that defensive coordinator Danny Gonzalez is a soft coach at all. He is very, very hard on his players. He demonstrated that from day one. Ever since he arrived in Tempe, so I don't think that if the defense is playing soft, it's because their coordinator's personality is rubbing off of them. Not at all, and that also would go uh, that that definitely would apply also to all the coaches, assistant coaches. I'm sorry on this side of the ball: Jamar Cain at defensive line, Antonio Pierce at linebacker, and Tony White at defensive back. So that's really not a case uh, of being that. Rob Likens, I know that he has a very upbeat and outgoing demeanor but uh, in between the lines you can tell that he can be very demanding of his players as well too i think offensive line coach dave christensen is definitely old school through and through and i wouldn't consider him to be a soft coach Uh, i mean maybe the other coaches on this side of the ball i wouldn't say soft as far as an accurate description but maybe not as hard as their counterparts On defense, I guess to some extent that may be true, but I feel that playing soft isn't, again, always a reflection of your coach, but sometimes it's just you being inexperienced and not just having the benefit of the doubt of the been there, done that factor. And when you are hesitant to play a certain way, execute a certain role, that by default would make you soft. So I think that's really what You're seeing right now with uh, the players, and maybe it's more noticeable on the offensive side than the defensive side. But I think there's really enough blame to pass around in terms of the uh, softness effect of this team. In terms of in-game adjustments, uh, I talked about it earlier. Sure, sometimes you don't want to wait until halftime to make adjustments. You'd like to see a team come strong out of the gate and establish themselves and by and large i don't think arizona state has done a good job with that i mean again there there were some games where i felt they did achieve that but in some respects i can't strongly argue let's put it that way that both the asu office and defense sometimes get hit in the mouth a little more than you'd like them to in the first half but are able to turn around matters in the second half and after eight games, I don't know if this is still has a chance to be a trend that may be reversed for the last four games of the season. But as long as the second, adju- second half adjustments are strong enough to reverse disturbing trends in the first half, then maybe that's a necessary evil that you have to live with. But obviously in the two back-to-back losses to Utah and UCLA, whatever was said at the halftime speech certainly did not result In a much better performance in the second half Uh, granted the defense and the offense for that matter did have their moments in the fourth quarter in those two losses but I don't mean to sound like a broken record but a lot of that improved play was way too little way too late and that is probably one of the frustrations with this team right now that even if they have positive conducive for success adjustments at halftime that There have been some cases where it just takes a little longer than you'd like to to implement those. Uh, The fact that UCLA was able to score two touchdowns in the third quarter, I thought that was a really big backbreaker because the defense did play better in the fourth quarter, shut, shut out the Bruins, but that elevated play had to take place in the third quarter at least to give the offense a chance to win the game or maybe sending into overtime and when they were down 42 to 10 the game was essentially over right there right then and whatever adjustments needed to take place and be reflective in the third quarter simply did not happen next question comes from somebody that i like to consider a friend but uh, he likes to consider himself as a foe big e sun devil does it suck to suck so much well, Big E, all I got to say is I know you're a lawyer, but you better lawyer up because that defamation lawsuit is coming your way. All jokes aside, uh, it wasn't a fun Saturday if that's what you're trying to get at. So I will acknowledge that. Next question comes from Doxy Devil Is ASU really hoping to become the solid Stanford model? which is really the NFL model of the Pac-12, playing fundamental, fundamental offense, steady but not flashy, playing rugged defense and just trying to wear people out. If that's the goal, I get it. That being said, the pinball Pac-12, unless you can dominate on both lines of scrimmage, you better average 35-plus points per game. I think that's a really interesting question and a good point that you do bring up because when you point to the strong Stanford teams, of years past, and even USC for that matter, who really for a lot of years employed more of a pro scheme on offense than the four wide receiver air rate or quasi air rate that they're running these days. Uh, th- those those are definitely schemes that were conducive for success and both USC and Stanford earlier this decade, let alone in last decade, were able to, <clears throat> excuse me, use that approach and be successful in the Pac-12. I don't know if ASU is necessarily striving for that. I know Herm Edwards said that a game like Washington State, he knew that playing the rugged defense and trying to chip away at an opponent is not an approach that's going to work, that they needed to score more than 30 points, and they did and they won. So I think that Herm Edwards is much less stubborn in his ways compared to what the typical fan may think. And I don't think he's opposed to scoring 30 points, but he wants to be smart about that. And the biggest example I can bring is the 2018 home game against Michigan State where Rob Likens admittingly, wanted to go for the home run hit, wanted to really put the nail in the coffin, or at least be in position to do that to beat the Spartans. While Herm Edwards dictated the offense to just milk the clock as much as he can and set it up for a game-winning field goal that did actually take place. So maybe that's the instance or the scenario where Herm Edwards is definitely not all in to air it out and just pepper the field with passes, what have you. But but overall, I don't think Herm Edwards is opposed to putting up a lot of points on the board. He definitely doesn't want to wear it down his defense by having short scoring drives or just short drives period, but i don 't think he's really opposed to being an explosive offense it 's just that he does a better job of picking his poison and realizing that different games need different approaches so games like Cal games like Michigan State, both of them on the road, he knew that to try and put the pedal to the metal and try to really have an explosive passing game was simply was not gonna be a framework that was gonna result in a win for Arizona State and he was right about that approach. So that's where I see Herm Edwards in terms of dictating uh the offense. I still think it gives Rob Likens a, lo- a lot of autonomy, but he also makes it clear what he expects in terms of a high pace, low pace, more run heavy, less dependency on the run. I think Herm Edwards does a good job communicating that. And Again, I don't think that he's necessarily opposed of winning games 35-30. to 30. He liked to win games, period. I don't think he's really too concerned about the manner that he wins games, as long as you do see some kind of progress from week to week. And that obviously wasn't the case in these last two games, so I can understand people maybe pointing the finger at Herm Edwards and thinking that a unimaginative offense is a culprit for that. I think... That is something that really maybe falls on Rob Likens and the rest of the assistant coaches rather than on Herm Edwards' wishes to have a slow operating offense, which obviously uh, did not help Arizona State in the Rose Bowl last Saturday. Next question comes from Nebeg. Although the three-three-five defensive scheme allows for more talent and speed on the field, why do we alter that purpose by giving uh, opposing wide receivers and tight ends eight-yard-plus cushions on nearly every down. With the lack of pressure our defensive line generates is simply too much time for our defensive backs to cover until they eventually get the receivers open. Now, as d acknowledges, it's not like Arizona State is giving up extremely long plays by the bushel each and every Saturday, but it hasn't been uncommon to see 70, 80-yard Scoring drives by the opponent, UCLA, just this past Saturday had two scoring drives of 16 plays each. So, is it time to play more press coverage than uh, they have in they have in weeks past? I would say there is some merit to that. Again, the the big plays aren't really taking place with any kind of regularity when it comes to the Arizona State defense. Certainly not in comparison to the defenses we saw under Todd Graham. And I think it's just really just a calculated risk where if you do play the press coverage and your man beats you down the field, now it's not just a first down, it's probably a touchdown. And I think that's really the the line of thought that is guiding the Arizona State scheme and its defensive back. So that's really the reasoning for that, just really, really comfortable with the personnel and the scheme that you run. I know that to the naked eye, It may not always seem appealing, and again, when you have long, sustainable scoring drives that Arizona State is yielding, it's easy to point to that, but I feel that if you do tackle better, if you're able just to execute your assignments at a higher level, then maybe giving that big cushion for opposing wide receivers isn't necessarily the end-all, be-all, of the issues that you're having on defense, but I would not be opposed to seeing more press coverage by the Arizona State defensive backs. Another question from Beg was, does Rob Likens realize that the middle of the field is fair play? Serious question. Let Jaden Daniels throw the ball over 10 yards. I think when you don't have a good receiving tight end at your disposal, then really exploiting the middle of the field and having those medium routes with more regularity does become an issue. I don't think that's the only reason, but I think just that is definitely a big part of that. I said in my post-game analysis, we're not seeing a lot of slants. We're not seeing a lot of running back screens. We're not seeing even wide receivers acting downfield as decoys to open up other parts of the field closer to the line of scrimmage for other skilled players to exploit. So I think there's definitely something to be said about that. And at this point, it's not something that you showed on film. So if you can really present that to opponents in the weeks to come, I think you may just be able to catch them by surprise showcasing an aspect of your offense that you really haven't showcased in weeks past. You'd like to think that having a bye week allows you more time to work on different and new approaches. And maybe that's one approach we might just see from the offense against USC and the three games following it. Another question from Sun Devil Rob. What position changes do you see coming in the last four games? Any prob- Any probable red shirts going to contribute in the last four games? I think at this point, there's no rabbit in the hat in terms of the ASU roster that the coaches can just yank out of their hat and put them out there and make them be an immediate impact player. When you already played eight out of 12 regular season games, you are what you are. I just don't see having players that have really contributed, if at all, up to that point, have an absolutely blazing hot November, if you will, and really play much above expectations. So I I think that if you're holding hope for that, that definitely might be a false hope. You're really going to have to depend on the players that at one time helped Arizona State reach a 5-1 and one mark. Now these are the same players that need to finish strong for the Sun Devil. So I don't see anybody who has rarely played up until now really have a chance to be an immediate impact player. Somebody who can significantly be a difference maker. In the last four games of the regular season. Next question comes from Envy Sun Devil. Does Marvin Lewis, the consultant on the staff, the former Cincinnati Bengals head coach, do, is he somebody who coaches the coaches, or is he basically Herm Edwards' personal advisor? Uh, only asking because I've never seen him speak with anyone else aside from Herm Edwards. And look, we don't know everything that does take place behind the scenes, and I'm sure Marvin Lewis, at, at minimal minimum, does talk to. ASU's offensive and defensive coordinators and maybe even some of the assistant coaches to boot But when you're in that position as you mentioned to coach the coaches You're definitely having a role where you have to interact with a lot of coaches aside from the head coach Himself, but as we saw in the HBO 24 7 college football show We saw Marvin Lewis really be involved in the scouting scouting ahead for for opponents probably reviewing also game from the week before reviewing practice footage and how that is going to figure into the game plan ahead of the next contest so those are really the aspects where marvin lewis gets his hands dirty so to speak more than anything i feel but he definitely lends his wisdom his expertise to the coaches he's being a critical voice if you will, not afraid to raise a question to Rob Eichens so or Danny Gonzalez why you're employing this or that scheme as ASU is about to face an opponent at the end of the week. So those are some of the roles that I see Marvin Lewis really taking part of. So, again, I think it might be mispercep- misperception, and I know that the HBO show did display that, that he talks to her, talks Herm Edwards and Herm Edwards only. I'm sure there's discussions that do take place with the coronators what's the rate of the those frequency of discussions compared to discussions like this with Herman Edwards? It's a question that's hard for me to answer. I can speculate like anybody else out there that's not privy to that certain behind the scenes aspect. But again, if you're coaching the coaches, your feedback can start and end by being communicated to the head coach. You have to at some point, at minimum, communicate with the coordinators. I have no doubt in my mind that Marvin Lewis does do that. To some extent, back to another question by Sun Devil Rob: Is uh, Kevin Mawai, AC's offensive analyst, interested in a longer-term coaching position with us? Absolutely, uh, Kevin Mawai, as some of you may know, does have a daughter on Arizona State swim team. That's what really drew him, along with with his obvious personal relationship with Herm Edwards, to be a member of the Arizona State coaching staff. And yes, I think he'd love to be an offensive line coach at Arizona State, and there's definitely a plan in place, and maybe that's not using the most appropriate term, but there's an understanding, if you will, that the current offensive line coach, Dave Christensen, is not going to be a long-term coach on staff. He definitely wants to retire at Arizona State, and, and he's a coach that I'm sure he would admit himself is probably not going to be coaching at Arizona State or anyone else in four or five years. So Arizona State is going to have to entice Kevin Mawai enough to stay on the staff as an offensive analyst, a role that uh, you have a lot of limitations that are placed by you, by the NCAA. You can't coach players one-on-one. You can't engage in off-campus recruiting activities unless Dave Christensen is not out there recruiting himself. So I'm sure there's some frustrations that do come with a position of offensive analyst such as Kevin Mawai. But I think also there's something to be said for Kevin Mawai to really develop his coaching techniques, his coaching approach. And I think Dave Christensen being the Wiley veteran that that he is, is a great person for Kevin Mawai to learn from. I definitely think be there'll be some schools that would love to pursue a fresh inductee to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, such as Kevin Mawai. So Arizona State Definitely has a challenge on its hands to retain Maui, who definitely comes across as a very strong family man. And as long as his daughter is still a member of the ASU swim team, I don't know if he's really itching to leave the Valley of the Sun. Once his daughter becomes a senior, which I think would be in a couple of years, if I'm not mistaken, maybe then he would be more apt to pick up and leave and coach and live somewhere else. But maybe by then, also Dave Christensen has retired, and Kevin Mawai is the next offensive line coach for the Sun Devils. I could see that scenario happening, not etching it in stone, but I think it's more likely than not of a scenario unfolding if Arizona State realizes that this is the only way to retain somebody like Kevin Mawai. Looky here, none other than Jedi ASU with a question of his own. And I think the first question that he's asked on the Devils Junkies podcast since I started to host it, so thank you, my friend. And Jedi ASU's question is, do you think those crazy 5 and one starts to the season caused some people's maroon and gold glasses to be a bit more skewed than normal to the eye of performing better than they should have in reality? When I mean, this is an extremely young and inexperienced team and year two coordinators still finding a footing and losing a couple of games. I think there's something to be said about that. Uh, maybe there's, there was some smoke and mirrors element to Arizona State's fast 5 and one start. And coordinators, like you said, only in their second year at Arizona State, somebody like Danny Gonzalez, who is being a defensive coordinator for the first time, having play-calling duties, there's still some newness to it, if you will, and maybe wasn't a factor early on in the season and now really coming to unfortunate fruition. Yes, I think there is something to be said about that. It's really, again, more the youth of the team, and I know fans may be sick and tired of hearing about that, but when you look at the larger impact players on this roster, they are underclassmen, whether they're freshmen, whether they're sophomores, even a player like Evan Fields, who, yes, is a junior, but in terms of the actual games that he started or played in general, I mean, they're definitely resembling more of a freshman or a sophomore at best. So... I think that a lot of the players have been learning as they go along, and there is a vicious learning curve that's associated with that. And again, to your point, Jedi, when you talk about coordinators that are only in their second year on the job at Arizona State, there is some learning curve in that aspect as well that needs to take place. So I think all of that really uh, does come into play when when the team does struggle. It's not that the coaches – forgot to coach and the players forgot to play. It's that you have the youth aspect, the inexperienced aspect that for one reason or another, you are able to disguise, be successful despite that. And when you play a very tough team like Utah and a resurgent team like UCLA, you're just no longer able to mask or be able to negate those uh, circumstances. So I think there's, there's uh, something to be said about that, and your points are well taken. You're also, uh, another question by Jedi, it says, if I recall correctly, Rob Likens was kept as a favor to the team in the spirit of consistency. If Likens were to be replaced, that would be Arizona State's fifth offensive coordinator in a six-year window. And yes, you are correct in terms of the uh, timeline over here and Ray Anderson really, I don't want to say forced Herm Edwards hands, but really and genuinely wanted to keep as much consistency on offense after he replaced the entire defensive staff. And I think it's important to have some kind of continuity from an old staff to a new staff when there's a change at head coach. So I think it definitely was a good intention by by Ray Anderson to really keep things as smooth as possible from an offensive standpoint, even in 2018 things did not not always go smooth, smooth on that side of the ball. 2019 is, is more of the same. So uh, I, you're absolutely correct about the reasoning to that, of that. And I think at the end of the day, everybody's going to be judged by the results of their body of work, whether you're, whether you're a coordinator, whether you're an assistant coach and, we will see at the end of 2019 uh, what kind of uh, decisions Home Edwards is or is not making when it comes to his staff. The next question comes from Sparky bmxer 13 What's the rule of stepping out of bounds and coming back and making a catch? And if you recall, that was a play that happened in the UCLA game where on the third down, the UCLA wide receiver did step on step out of bounds and was the first person after he stepped out of bounds to touch the ball, let alone catch it for a first down. And the reason we know why he stepped out of bounds is wasn't only the TV replay, but just the fact that the the side judge did take off his hat and throw it on the ground, which is the clear sign of a player being out of bounds. So you're absolutely right in terms of the spirit of the rule. Uh, this is why this was ruled an illegal catch just because the UCLA player did step out of bounds right before he caught the ball and was the first person to touch the ball that was thrown by the UCLA quarterback. So it definitely was frustrating to see the review brew, review booth reverse that call. I'm sure that that definitely falls under the con- another, another controversial call that did go against Arizona State. I don't think the referees determine the game. There's definitely a slew of issues that plagued Arizona State, but in terms of the momentum of it, I mean, sure, I think the referees did have some hand in that and uh, that play that I just mentioned and, you, and that you brought up, Sparky BMXer, is definitely a good example of that. And you asked another question about another, controvers- another controversial officiating call. What is the rule on a player tossing a football back to the ref and getting flagged for it? Well, here's the thing. If Eno Benjamin... After he rushed to the one-yard line, if he just kept the ball there after the whistle blew the play dead, we're not sitting here and talking about whether Eno Benjamin softly or strongly tossed the ball back to the ref. But when you throw the ball at the ref, even though it's unintentional, and the ball unintentionally does hit his chest, I think the referee, as a knee-jerk reaction, felt compelled to throw the flag at Eno Benjamin, who I don't think is a dirty player by any means. So when we talk about those bam bam plays where players cannot help themselves and commit a transaction a uh, transgression I'm sorry that's almost what happened with Eno you know, Benjamin I don't think he intended at all to throw the ball at the ref even if he was frustrated by the offensive lines inability to block well for him and and really prevent him from scoring a touchdown at least on that specific play I don't think there was really any Malicious intention by you Benjamin at all. It just came out that way and Unfortunately prevented Arizona State from scoring a touchdown instead of the ball being on the one yard line It's pushed 15 yards back Arizona State not able to punch the ball in has to set up for a field goal And in a game where points were absolutely at a premium from Arizona State fighting an uphill battle for nearly the entire contest that uh, definitely was detrimental Another question from Sparky BMXer 13 do you think the quote-unquote pro-model approach is affecting the team's discipline and sense of urgency to get going in the beginning of games? I don't think the pro-model approach is one that forces players to be laid back, forces them to be undisciplined. I think that it's still an anomaly what we're seeing the last two weeks where 12 penalties were committed in the Utah game for over 120 yards nine penalties, six in the first half alone committed against UCLA. I don't think it really has to do anything with the pro model or a lack thereof. I don't think it has to do with coaches being too laid back. I believe that it's just the players allowing the frustration to hit them harder than you expected. And it's not that we only see underclassmen committing those penalties, but... When he does talk about the overall spirit of inexperience on the team, maybe that's what's causing the unusual number of penalties, and that's why Arizona State, along with slow starts on offense and defense, is also digging itself a hole that we're not able to climb out of the last two contests by committing all these penalties. So if fans might be still still be skeptical about the pro model approach, I mean, that's certainly your prerogative, but... To blame the penalties on that approach and on that organizational structure or line of thinking of the program, in my humble opinion, that is misplaced. And last question uh, from our Devils Huddle members, ASU Devil twenty-three. Please address the fact that an Arizona booster, uh, Jeff uh, Jim Folucans, is continuing to uh, officiate ASU games as a replay booth official. And yes, this is something that has taken place several times a year each and every season it did take place against utah and against ucla and the fact that the replay booth in both contests did have some controversial calls definitely bring to light how can uh, an arizona university of arizona booster really be part of a replay booth that involves an arizona state contest all i can tell you that both jim fotogance and the pac-12 officials have swore on a stack of bibles that whatever biases some may think a University of Arizona booster may have towards Arizona State will not come to fruition in a replay booth. And if you ask Jim Fulte right now, if any calls that he made the last two weeks or any previous years did carry some bias against ASU, I'm sure he's going to answer no. But you're not inside somebody's mind to really render that true or not i think when you have controversial calls the fact that you have a university of arizona booster making those calls can only heighten the conspiracy theory and i don't consider myself a conspiracy conspiracy theorist at all and i'm somebody that is more than happy to acknowledge other aspects that cause arizona state to play poorly and not pin it all on officiating whether it's on the field or in the replay booth I think it's an uncomfortable position for all parties to be in, but it is what it is. And as long as the Pac-12 continues to schedule Fulton Gantz for ASU games, that's the way it's going to go. And I don't know if there's just not enough replay booth officials in the Pac-12 to go around. And the fact that he's based out of, out of Arizona does make him more likely to be part of replay booth. When Arizona State plays Pac-12 South opponents, which are only one hour flight away, I would be surprised to see him in the replay booth when Arizona State plays Oregon State, because now you're talking about a much longer road trip and you think there would be officials in Northern California, Oregon, the state of Washington, that should be able to be part of that replay booth. But I'm not glossing over the fact that the optics are not that great and again as much as people will promise you up and down that there's no bias against arizona state it's a very peculiar if not uncomfortable situation to deal with and unfortunately arizona state is just caught caught in that situation but again i don't want to suggest by any means that it's a replay booth and replay booth only or the on-field officiating and on-field officiating only that has caused arizona state to lose Back-to-back games. Moving on to our questions from Twitter at our Twitter account, The Devil's Junkies Podcast. First one comes from Full at Full Send. Always, does a change in offensive coordinator at the end of the season seem likely? Look, it's always uncomfortable starting to speculate on job security of any member of this coaching staff. All I can tell you is that Herm Edwards is a very hands-on head coach. He will thoroughly examine the accomplishments of the staff. Not only waiting till the end of the season, but this is really an ongoing process all year long. I can't get into the mind of Herm Edwards to speculate what he will or will not do concerning one staff member or another, but I think the only constant aspect of college football is that you consistently see change, whether it's attrition of players and whether it's different assistant coaches moving on for one reason or another so i can guarantee you that the 2020 coaching staff will not be exactly the same as the 2019 who exactly is going to move when and why that remains to be seen and i'll just leave it at that next question comes from mc sun devil does daniel nagada who's a four-star all-purpose back and an asu prospect delaying his decision to December, good or bad for Arizona State. I think that anytime you have a prospect that is highly sought after, delaying his decision can only help him just to think things through. And without getting into too many details, I think the fact that Daniel Nagata is making a decision in December rather than October could help Arizona State. Not saying it's a guarantee, but in the grand scheme of things, could help the Sun Devils. We'll see what happens. It's just about two months away from now. A lot can happen between now and then. The next question comes from at Proud Devil alum. Why doesn't ASU go, go under sender Moore within that aid and play action over an RPO run pass option shotgun? Well, I mean, you're right. The uh, RPO scheme is almost exclusively ran Uh, under shotgun, and that doesn't seem as that conducive for play action, but nonetheless, that really has become a staple of so many college football offenses. I think that with an offensive line right now, with two true freshmen starting, not always being that sound and blocking, being in shotgun formation, no matter what play you're going to run out of shotgun, giving Jenny Daniels more time to make a decision is probably the prudent way to go rather than putting him under center, having really a seven-step drop more often than not if you're going to run during that formation. So I think that it's really a classic example of adapting your scheme to the personnel. So I don't think that aside from short yardage situations, you'll see Jaden Daniels really go under center. We did see him quite a bit do it against UCLA and Arizona State really had a hard time with those uh, third and one, fourth and one situations. So going under center is definitely not a guarantee for a conversion of a third or a fourth down. But again, I just feel it's adapting scheme to personnel, but really Arizona State Running play action from a shotgun formation rather than under center is definitely not the exception It really is the rule across college football these days. Next uh, question comes from devil o- devil ology hope I'm pronouncing this right. Why not run is simply the question. I guess you're talking about Why has not Arizona State run the ball more? I think Against Utah they did a better job in that in the second half but as I mentioned in my Post game analysis following that contest, Arizona State definitely should have run Eno Benjamin much more than it did against Utah. He only had 15 carries, which were pretty much evenly distributed between the first half and the second half. And even though Utah plays the run very well, I thought Eno Benjamin, all things considered, did have a pretty good performance more in the second half than he did in the first. So even though Arizona State was down two touchdowns literally the entire game, I thought that ASU should have run the ball much more than they did in the second half against Utah. Against UCLA, as much as this defense has been unimpressive for the most part, one thing that they do pretty well is stop the run. So on the one hand, I wasn't shocked that Benjamin was having as many difficulties as he was experiencing running the ball. Nonetheless, it's still disappointing. I just feel that Physicality, really, both from the offensive and defensive line for the Sun Devils was a huge issue all night long in the Rose Bowl. So I think Arizona State tried to run the ball, but they were really stonewalled time and time again against UCLA. I mean, Jaden Daniels did a much better job running the ball than Eno Benjamin did, but the running game really, never, really never developed for Arizona State all night long, and definitely was a significant factor in coming up short in that game. Next question comes from at who that devil. How do you correct the soft mentality of a team? Should Ashari Croswell play another game this year? Well, the soft mentality of the team, I kind of addressed earlier in a different question. I don't think it's really a matter of coaches being so laid back that the players feel that they can be soft and not really toughen and harden hardened when they take to the field. It's really more of a, a youth slash inexperience factor when you're more thinking than just going out there and playing, that definitely results in softer rather than tougher play. And that's what Arizona State is experiencing right now. You would hope that in the laundry list of things to fix over the bye week, that's one aspect that's addressed and thoroughly addressed. So I'm curious to see how the toughness factor against USC coming off the bye week compares to games like Utah and especially. Like UCLA. So again, I just think it's not so much the coach's style of instruction that is causing the soft play. I think it's just really the inexperienced lack of confidence factor that is contributing to that shortcoming. In terms of Ashari Croswell, look, I mean, definitely there has been some undisciplined play from the sophomore safety last week against UCLA and the week before against Utah. I don't mean to belabor the point over here, but it's something you kind of need to live with, but definitely still correct when it comes to a sophomore player, even somebody like Croswell, who has played quite a bit of games for a second year player, but I wouldn't bench him for the entire year or play him sparingly for the last four games, just really use his experiences as painful as they may be these last these last two contests as a learning tool that can hopefully help him come out much stronger the last four games and really fix the mental lapses that he's having recently so the last four games he can finish the regular season on a much stronger note next question comes from R.D.L. Harden, please speak to the goal of competitive consistency the last two games. Well, I'm sure that the competitive consistency is said in jest because that is the factor that ASU Athletic Director Ray Anderson brought up when he decided to make the coaching change to fire Todd Graham and bring on Herm Edwards. Granted, the competitive consistency definitely has not been there the last two games, but I would also venture to guess that when ASU was sporting a 5-1 mark that you did not bring up that aspect. Or really, I would say deficiency of the team. So, look, is this one of those things where, when things go bad, it's uh, really easy? I think to pick apart the decision by Ray Anderson to fire Todd Graham and bring Herm Edwards aboard. I get that; it's fair. It's fair game. I think that Herm Edwards and the coaching staff at large has not done a good job preparing the team for the last two games. That is beyond. Stating the obvious, I think they did a much better job the first six games of the year. Let's see how they finish the last four games before we consider the competitive consistency to be absolutely absent or a huge issue concerning this football program. Next question comes from at MC Devil. Actually, the last question from our Twitter followers. Do you think Herm Edwards laid back demeanor is giving players more license to commit personal fouls? I think that youth frustration learning curve and sometimes just unfortunate bang bang plays (laughs) like i hate to be so simplistic when i bring up that term but sometimes it really does come down to that i think all those factors collectively have caused asu to have what is it 21 penalties in the last two games Very uncharacteristic. ASU was the least penalized team going into the Utah game. I I believe on average they committed only five penalties per contest. So I don't think Herm Edwards' demeanor was more stringent those first six games than it was in the last two contests. So I don't think that the laid-back demeanor has caused Arizona State to be much more undisciplined. I think it's just been a perfect storm of all the factors that I mentioned earlier that really caused the abnormal large number of penalties. I'm very curious to see, like everyone else, how they come out and address that issue when they play USC, when they have so many challenging contests in the month of November. But if they can fix it, the last four games of the season, then the prospects of Arizona State having a winning record, showing any kind of improvement over 2018 in terms of win, number of wins is definitely going to be a dim prospect. There's no doubt about that. The high number of penalties has been so egregious the last two games that this has to be, if not the number one item on the issues that need need to be corrected during the bye week, definitely in the top three, top five. And again, I'd like to give the coaches the benefit of the doubt that they can fix this the rest of the way. But if they can't, then Arizona State is definitely going to be in a whale of trouble because you can't go in and commit double-digit or near-double-digit penalties each and every Saturday and still expect to uh, put the game in the win column. Mama Mavis, oh, mama, they try my patience. It's <laughs> gone, who is left to save us? <laughs> We mourn, I'm praying for my neighbors They say the devil's at work And <laughs> is calling favors You say I'm dangerous I speak for the nameless I fly with the vultures I be with them bangers If change don't come Then the change won't come If the bands make them dance Then the rain gon' come Am I passing I'm to the light? light. I'm looking
1: at Looking, looking, looking your eyes All the world is out of your head
0: as the podcast comes to a close, just wanted to offer some parting thoughts of my own. This goes back to the question that I asked Jordan and Simone earlier in the podcast. Which really is the true Arizona State team that we've seen so far in 2019? Is it the team that started five and one, perhaps playing above its heads in some way, engineering multiple? fourth quarter comebacks, or is it really just more the team that really came down to earth the last two weeks with losses against Utah and UCLA, a team that is just so inexperienced that really cannot handle adversity, especially on the road? And that's uh, definitely a legitimate question. A lot of fans' expectations were tempered just due to the fact that ASU was going to start a freshman quarterback and the growing pains. The vicious learning curve is just a byproduct when you have a high level of inexperience at the most important position on the field. As much as you marvel over the three fourth quarter comeback wins that Jaden Daniels has engineered, you also have to keep in mind that what you saw against Utah and against UCLA is to be expected from such a young signal caller then you add to the equation the fact that asc was forced to start two two freshmen on the offensive line one of them at the very crucial role of left tackle the fact that arizona state as much as they wanted to for one reason or another could not develop a number two running back to help lessen the load off of you know benjamin and when you look at the defense the fact that the defensive line especially the pass rush component of that unit, has been lacking for most of the season. Now, suddenly, the last two weeks, you're having multiple personal fouls committed by players on this side of the ball, absolutely killing your chances of getting off the field in a hurry and putting more pressure on an offense which, as mentioned earlier, has its own issues to contend with as it is. Then you add... Into the mix, having a field goal kicker that cannot consistently convert field goal attempts from 40 yards and beyond, a punter who started the season on absolute fire and has since then had some very average games and really directional punning, which was very much needed in a lot of the games this year, has been close to being non existent. Kickoffs also an issue, having a much lower rate of touchbacks just because of the overall leg strength of the ASU kickers. So you really have a perfect storm of a lot of elements that maybe should have handicapped the Sun Devils more than they really actually did in reality. And Arizona State, despite all those deficiencies, is still sitting here at 5-3. and three. Sure, not ranked in the top 25 anymore and probably won't return to those rankings this year, out of contention for the Pac-12 South, but nonetheless, with three of their next four games at home, and yes, each contest is more challenging than the other, still has a chance to have a modest improvement in the number of wins over 2018, has a chance at a better ball game when the 2019 regular season concludes, so if ASU can show that modest improvement, winning one or even two more games than 2018, then as an Arizona State fan, you're going to get the feeling that this program is indeed marching in the right direction, that the pro model, that the hiring of Herm Edwards, one of the most controversial hirings I think I've seen in my 20 years of covering the team, that it all does make sense, that this team is poised to reach a level of consistency that, we definitely haven't seen all that much this century. So you can always point to the month of November being absolutely crucial, unless you're several games under 500 and you just wish for this campaign to mercifully end. So at 5-3, and three, it's a mark at this juncture of the season that I would say a good portion of fans did not expect to see. I would say that predictions of 6-6 six and six and 7-5 and five have definitely been more prevalent than the optimistic outlooks of eight or nine win on the upswing of a season that's been maybe not a complete roller coaster but uh, definitely had some peaks and valleys along the way with us via november to be remembered for arizona state time will tell just because we did not expect a high rate of success in the month of september does not mean that arizona state cannot recapture that mojo that they had just last month and translate it to the field. Again, playing so many games at home, you like to think that at the end of the day, that may count for something. Now, obviously, we need to see a lot of progress in a lot of different areas, all detailed earlier in this podcast, and it may be impossible for Arizona State to hit a bullseye On each and every deficiency that needs to be significantly improved. But nonetheless, if they can successfully address the majority of the shortcomings, of the issues that are plaguing them right now, then this season does have a chance to end on a positive, if not surprising, manner. So it's anyone's guess how strong Arizona State is going to finish their 2019 campaign. But one thing you can definitely rest assured. Of is that myself and my dedicated staff at devilsdigest.com will bring you all the finest coverage of this team, even during the bye week, let alone in the last four weeks of the season. If you like uh, what you heard uh, from me today, there's uh, much more waiting for you in the Devil's Huddle, our premium message board at devilsdigest.com. If you're not a subscriber already, I would encourage you to sign up not only for the coverage of the last four games of the regular season for Arizona state, but the next two months should be very busy recruiting wise, as you may or may not know the early period signing day, which really is going to encompass the vast majority of the 2020 signees of the recruiting class uh, is December 18th. So we're less than two months away. There's going to be a flurry of activity in that regard. And as a premium subscriber, you're not going to miss one bit of news when it comes to building for the future for this Arizona State program. So thanks again for joining Simone, for being our guest at the Devils-Junkies podcast. Thank you so much for all your questions that you submitted for this week's episode. And thanks for tuning in. And until next time, enjoy the rest of the week. And our next podcast will feature a preview of the USC game on November 9th.
1: I was living in a devil town.
0: Didn't
1: know it was a devil town Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town